Well, if you have your Bibles, you can keep them open to Matthew 21. And yes, it is currently 1035, and the Gonzaga tip is at 1110. <laughs> and if you're wondering, I did time my sermon. Uh, in 2004, I had a, a really cool opportunity as a young 14-year-old to go hear President uh, George W. Bush uh, speak at a campaign event uh, that he, as he was running for re-election. And it was a youth group event of all things. Our youth pastor took a handful of us to go hear him speak, and we arrived about an hour and a half, two hours early, to get in line and, and wait and find our seat and we got in, found our seats, good seats where we could see him, and they come over the speaker and they say, President Bush won't be here for another two to two and a half hours because he hadn't left his other city yet that he was uh, just having an event at. So we go, well, we're here. <laughs> we're going to stay. And so when you've got about, you know, a couple thousand people waiting two to two and a half hours for somebody, you start hearing some rumbling start hearing people say, hey, I, I, I think that's him. I think he's coming because they saw a helicopter fly over. Or, no, no, that's him because they saw a couple of police cars go by. Well, you learn at a campaign event, you can tell when the president has arrived. You can tell. We're, it's an outside event, and so you could see in the, in behind the stage where they were going to pull up. And, and when the president started getting close, started to get close, you could tell. It went from one or two helicopters in the sky to 15, some being, you know, security, some being reporters. It went from no security in the aisles to the scariest Secret Service security members you've ever seen in the aisles. And it wasn't just, you know, the helicopters and the security, but it was the jets that flew over to let us know the president was coming. And then when he finally did arrive, you had what felt like at that time over a hundred squad cars with sirens and, and, and their lights flashing, leading in this long line of the most intense black suburbans you've ever seen. And then when he finally pulled up, you could tell because it was all these cars, people started cheering. They started chanting, right? And then when he finally stepped out, the place went crazy. You could tell that the President of the United States had arrived. You could tell he was there. And in our culture, it's not just presidents that we make a big scene about or who make a big scene when they enter somewhere, is it? I mean, we, we see this everywhere, whether it's people who have world power or just little pastor's kids who enter the church. The way someone enters somewhere speaks a lot about them. You could tell a lot about someone's status or who they are by how they present themselves. I mean, think about it. We just had the Grammys last week, right? And these people pull up to a red carpet laid out for them, protected for them. They get out of their big fancy cars and limos in their overpriced dresses and suits. They step out, they stand there so everyone can shout their names and take pictures of them. Why? Because they have fame and influence. You can think of a boxer, two boxers entering, entering into an arena for a match. 
And they all come in with hype music and their entourage and, and their hands w- up in the air as if they'd already won the fight. And the bell hadn't even sounded yet. Or you can think of my son Asa, how he enters into the church building as if he runs the place. Which he probably does. The way someone presents themselves tells us a lot about them. But think about this. How would a king enter into a city preparing for battle? How would, not only just a king, but how would the king of the universe enter into a city to come and save and redeem his people? How would he enter in to this city? This is what the triumphal entry, Palm Sunday, teaches us. It shows us today that the way Jesus enters into Jerusalem says a whole lot about him. It says a whole lot about what kind of king he is. And the first thing the triumphal entry teaches us and tells us about Jesus is that he is the promised king. Look at verses 1 through 5 with me. It says this, Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. When Jesus and his disciples draw near to Jerusalem, Jesus says, Hey, let's stop for a minute. And before we enter, here's a couple errands I need you to run. And they might be thinking, Well, maybe Jesus is hungry. We've been traveling for a while. He'll give us some money. We'll, we'll, we'll go get some groceries for him and maybe some water. Well, that's not exactly what Jesus sends them to do, is it? He tells them he wants a donkey and it's colt. So Jesus sends two disciples on this errand run. And oh, by the way, they're not given any way to purchase the donkey and the colt. No, he says to take it. They are told to take the ones that are tied up that they first come across when they enter. And then he tells them, if anyone tries to stop you, just say the Lord needs them. And he'll return them when he's done. Imagine what those two disciples, who drew the short end of the stick here, were probably discussing with one another on their way into the city. Probably looked at each other and said, so are you going to grab the colt? Or am I going to, how are we going to, okay. And then they probably looked at each other and said, he told us just to say the Lord wants it? That, that's what he wants us to say? Now this may have easily seemed like a strange mission to be on. But thankfully Matthew, who was there, gives us clear insight into why this must take place. Jesus, in his sovereignty, is orchestrating this event for the completion and the fulfillment of Zechariah 9.9 which we had read this this morning. This is not being done simply because Jesus is done walking or he's tired. 
No, rather, he's having this colt and donkey picked out, taken, so he can enter into his city, Jerusalem, as the king he is. Jesus, by riding on this colt, is saying something about himself. He is telling us that he is the promised king, directly prophesied about in in Zechariah. He is the king that is going to come riding on the colt of a donkey to save his people. But it's not in the way that they've always anticipated it, is it? As some war hero prepared for battle with an oppressive government boasting about how he's going to defeat them like some boxer entering in the arena. No, he's different than that. And this is the second thing that the triumphal entry teaches us about Jesus. The second point that it teaches us is that Jesus is a humble king. Read back with verse 5 through verse 8 with me. It says, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. Jesus is the promised king, who is the humble king, as Zechariah prophesied. I mean, look at what he does. He sits on the the cloaks of his disciples on top of this colt of a donkey and enters into the city, the city of his people, the city where his temple is, where the temple is. He comes not with a war horse or an army, but with his disciples and a colt. And this isn't abnormal for Jesus, is it? I mean, think about how he entered into the world. Born of a lowly virgin Mary in a manger. Nowhere near worthy for a king, is it? And this is Jesus doing it again. And what's the response of the city? It's cheering and praise of the coming king, just like Zechariah's prophecy was ending in chapter 9, that that would happen. And look at what they're yelling. Let's read verse 9. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. They are beginning to see who Jesus really is. Hosanna in the Old Testament meant save us. And son of David was a kingly reference. They are saying save us king or King, save us, or the king is here to save us. They are beginning to understand who Jesus actually is and what he is coming to do. But unfortunately, they don't fully see who he is, do they? Look at verses 10 through 11. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. They answer, he is a prophet, which is true. But is he simply a prophet? Is he only a prophet? Well, they ask the right question. Who is he? And before we can fully answer that question, we have to look at what's going on in this scene. 
We have to look at the whole scene here, and then we'll come back to that question. This scene seems like a great occasion, doesn't it? I mean, everyone is pumped. Everyone is excited about who is entering. And this is what a good entrance will do. A good entrance will get you excited about the person. But the entrance doesn't tell you exactly what they're going to do. You see, you may be excited about who this person is or the way they entered, but you may not like what they're going to do. And what Jesus does in this next scene is what causes this moment from being a great celebration to leading to his crucifixion. Look at verses 12 through 14. And Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. He said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. Jesus' entrance into the city reveals that he is the promised humble king. But this scene shows us what Jesus came to do. And the first thing he does is he goes into the temple and he cleanses it. He cleans it. Jesus goes into what he calls his house and he cleanses the outer court where the Gentiles would have been trying to worship. They would have been coming and trying to, to get opportunities to come and worship God. They were converted and they started wanting to worship God. But what, what the religious elite were doing is they were charging them outrageous prices for the different pigeons and animals they would need to sacrifice. They were capitalizing on them. And Jesus comes in and he cleanses this outer court from the booths and the market-like atmosphere that is hindering the Gentiles and others from coming and being able to freely worship God. This is what Jesus has come to do. He came to clear a, a path for direct relationship to God. And this ultimately happens through his death and resurrection. And the cleansing of the temple is just a glimpse into the reality of the gospel. And why can Jesus do this? He can only do this because this temple is his. It's his house. Look at verse 13 again. He said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. This is a pretty bold statement. And he can only, and he can, and he can say this because it's true. He is claiming the temple is his house, which ultimately means, it, which is ultimately God's house, Yahweh's house. So what is he saying? That God is home. That God is here. And that it is to look like this, that all people, Jew and Gentile, lame and blind, can come to him and worship. No boundaries. No payment. Just Christ himself. Jesus Christ makes the way for them to come worship their God. But he didn't come only to cleanse the temple, did he? He came healing the lame and the sick and the blind so they as well could freely worship their God. Jesus, the promised humble king, has come to reconcile God and man for direct relationship with one another. And this is why he calls it a house of prayer. 
Because this is what prayer is, isn't it? Prayer is the result of Christ cleansing and healing us of our sins so we can be in relationship with God and we can approach him at any time. Tim Keller has a great line that says, the gospel says we can approach the king at two in the morning. We can approach him at any time, but we can only approach God by the cleansing work of Jesus Christ. And this is the great news of the gospel, isn't it? This profound scene reflects the gospel. Christ Jesus coming into this world to step in the place of those who are poor in spirit, lame and sick due to their sin, interceding for them so they can come and pray and worship to their creator of the universe, God. This is the good news. This is why Christ came. And you would think, after the scene of him entering in, after seeing all this, that everybody would be shouting and praising him and asking, who is this? But this is never the case, is it? Let's look at verse 15 together. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. As Jesus was healing in the temple, the chief priests caught, uh, and scribes caught wind of what was going on. And they start to try to find Jesus, probably looking to test him and argue with him, telling him to stop. And while they were going, going to find him, you can imagine they start hearing children, young, maybe, maybe younger than three, close to five, in between that range, yelling, Hosanna, son of David. And that just leads them to be furious. It builds this, this, this heat inside of them. And, 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 and it's this indignation. It, it's this idea of, of a physical fury. A, a grief that is so deeply disturbing. So imagine they're just angry on the inside and on the outside. They're just raging with what's going on. And they look. They look to Jesus and they say, when they find him, they go, do you hear what these are saying? Not children, these. And they're probably expecting Jesus to say something like, oh, hey, I'm sorry. They're kids. They're kids. And you know what? I'll get my youth pastor, Andrew, one of our disciples. He'll take them. And you know what he'll do? He'll catechize them. He'll, he'll, he'll teach them proper theology. Don't worry. Is that what he does? No. No, Jesus adds fuel to the fire when he affirms what they are saying. Look at verses 16 through 17 with me. It says this, And they said to him, Do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, Yes. Have you never read out of the mouth of infants and nursing, baby, nursing babies you have prepared praise? And leaving them, he went out of the city to Bethany and lodge there. Jesus, rather than rebuking the children, he affirms what they are saying by, by alluding to Psalm 8-2, which if you know that psalm, you can go back and read Psalm 8, the very first verse is all about Yahweh himself, all about the Lord God himself. But he's not just staying at Psalm 8, he's actually going back to the, to the event of crossing the Red Sea. Where at the end, the whole, all of nation, even the babes and the nursing infants, were known for praising God for their deliverance. 
Jesus is saying, that psalm, that event is pointing to me. This is about me coming and saving and delivering my people. And we know how the scribes and the chief priests respond, don't we? They leave this situation. And Mark and Luke give us insight that when they left, they looked for ways to destroy him. This indignation for Jesus led them to plot a way to kill him, which we know in a week's time they were successful. You see, the children and the religious elite were answering the question, who is this, in two totally different ways. They had two totally different answers, which brings us back to verse 10, when the whole city is shouting, who is this? The scribes and the chief priests, as well as the children, show us two responses, really the only two responses we have to Christ. You will either see him as the king who came to save, or you will see him as a threat. Again, Tim Keller says uh, in his sermon, uh, the, the triumphal entry shows us that you will either crown Jesus or you will crucify him. The answer to the question, who is this, will lead you to say that he is king of my life and I give him my life, or you will plot a way to destroy him. I mean, think about this for a second. Of, of, of all the answers we hear about who Jesus is in the world, right? Who is this, you ask? Who is Jesus? Well, Jesus is a great teacher, but I'm not sure about him being the son of God. Who is Jesus, you ask? I believe Jesus is the same as Muhammad and Joseph Smith. Maybe, maybe a prophet or, or a good teacher, but to say he's God is, is, is ridiculous. Who is Jesus? Well, Jesus is great for you, but not for me. These are all attempts to kill Jesus and his kingship over our lives. You will either crown Jesus as king or you will kill him. You will hate him. I mean, a great example from the, the scriptures is the rich young ruler. The rich young ruler, if you remember the story, comes to Jesus, runs up to him. No one stops him, runs up to him and says, good teacher, what must I do to be saved? And Jesus, looking at him, asks him a couple questions about the word good, but then tells him, hey, do these, these commandments, right, from the Ten Commandments. He goes, great, I've done those since I was a boy. Jesus goes, awesome, you've done all but one thing. Go sell all your possessions and come follow me. Give it to the poor, give your possessions to the poor and come follow me. And what does he do? Does he say, you're the king and I'm going to follow you? No. His answer to the question, who is this? Who is this Jesus? Is to leave Jesus because Jesus is a threat to all the success he's had in his life. And Jesus was deeply saddened by his departure and his answer. These are the two options we have with this promised humble king. We will either crown Jesus as king of our lives or we will try to kill him. There's no in between. 
Jesus is not a likable character. He is a king that is to be followed. The children at that time were considered insignificant. And they are getting the answer right. They understood. They could see. And not only could they see who Jesus was, but if you look back at chapter 20, verses 29 through 30, the blind men could see. Look at this. And as they went out of Jericho, a great crowd followed him. And behold, there were two blind men sitting by the roadside. And when they heard that Jesus was passing by, they cried out, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. They could see who Jesus was. They knew who who he is and who he was, and they're blind, physically can't see him. But they believed what they heard. And they cried out to him. Those who studied the scriptures, the religious elite, could not. They are blind to who he is. And that says more about them than it does about Jesus. Just like the rich young ruler, the religious elite will not give up their power to crown Jesus as their king. Rather, they they want to kill him. And we're no different, are we? We are slow to give up authority over our lives. And this is sin, isn't it? In, in the high school group in Crew, we teach the kids an acronym for sin, which S stands for shove off God, I stands for I'm in charge, and N, not you. Sin is to say shove off God, I'm in charge, not you. I wear the crown, you don't. I would rather kill you than let you be my king. And this is exactly what Christ died for, isn't it? This is what Christ came to heal and cleanse. The disease of sin which separates us from our creator God. The sin that cripples and blinds us from allowing him to be king. This king's arrival leaves us with one question. Who is this? And your answer to that question will either see Jesus wearing the crown or you'll try to destroy him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the sending of your son, for the king's entry. We thank you that he arrived, that he did go to the cross, and that he did rise again from the grave so we can be reconciled to you. In Jesus' name, amen.